Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we analyze Southeast Asia's slide towards authoritarianism. Modern Southeast Asia is a truly diverse environment in culture, language, geography, and especially politics. The 10 countries have made some tangible progress via ASEAN, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, in integrating their economies, reducing some trade barriers, and cooperating on transnational issues. ASEAN's progress as a regional group is fascinating for watchers of geopolitics in Asia. Yet in domestic politics and governance, several Southeast Asian countries have started to regress in terms of democracy, human rights, and rule of law, and in some cases, they've never pushed forward. Joining the podcast to discuss Southeast Asia's spiral back towards the authoritarianism that dominated the region in the 20th century is CSIS Southeast Asia Program Deputy Director and Fellow, Brian Harding. We asked Brian to help us understand the state of governance and governments across the region. Starting with pending democratic elections in Malaysia in May, where the ruling party of Prime Minister Najib Razak has taken several measures to limit the effectiveness of opposition parties. Then we check in on Thailand, nearly four years after a military coup deposed democratically elected leadership, to see if promised elections will ever happen. Next, we turn to the Philippines to assess democratically elected but bordering on strongman Rodrigo Duterte to discuss how his firebrand style and campaign of extrajudicial killings may threaten Manila's standing around the world. We also briefly touch on mainland Southeast Asia in Cambodia and Vietnam. Then we analyze the bright spots for democracy in the islands of the region, specifically in Indonesia and Singapore. What are they doing right? And in the final segment, we talk about what the United States could be doing to halt this trend if it continues. I'll turn it over to my colleague Jeff Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog and producer of this podcast, who sat down with Brian this week. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog and producer of this podcast. Our guest today is Brian Harding, deputy director and fellow with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Jeff. Brian, we're going to discuss a variety of domestic political situations uh, across the region. We have experienced something of a slide back toward authoritarianism in the region to an extent. Uh, Let's start with the most newsworthy of the various stories, Malaysia. Uh, Prime Minister Najib Razak and his party, UMNO, uh, faced elections in early May, and they received criticism for curtailing and trying to ban opposition parties, including uh, 92-year-old former prime minister, Malaysian power broker, uh, Mahathir Mohamed's party. Uh, Mahathir, of course, as a former UMNO member, enjoys some significant standing in Malaysian politics. Can you catalog some of the key developments up to this point in the campaign? And what are some of the factors that are shaping this election in Malaysia? Thanks, Jeff. And uh, first of all, I'd just zoom out just for a second with what you said up on the top. And I mean, without a doubt, there are some troubling trends on democracy, human rights, governance in Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, these are 10 very different countries, and it's always difficult to uh, identify particular trends. But in this case, I think we, we, we can. And it's certainly not a race to the top at the moment here on expanding uh, political freedoms uh, and rule of law in Southeast Asia. Um, Malaysia, certainly a good place to start, as we'll have an election uh, coming up uh, very shortly. Um, The last general election in Malaysia in 2013 uh, was the closest election since since independence, right? Uh, And actually, the opposition won a larger percentage of the vote than uh, the Barisan Nasional, led by uh, uh, Prime Minister Naz. Najib Razak uh, and his 
uh, UMNO party. So we've known for five years that this election was going to be really, really close. I think one thing to recognize, though, is that, as some recent polling suggested, uh, uh, 72% of Malaysians look at economic issues as the top election issue. Uh, so we can talk about intrigue between individuals um, and uh, um, uh, scandal and relations with the United States, China, etc. We should remember that day-to-day costs of living issues, the future of a general services uh, tax um, are top issues uh, in Malaysia. Um, uh, It's been interesting, though, in terms of personalities. It's really incredible that you have uh, former Prime Minister Mahathir, uh, who used to lead UMNO, now somehow uh, working together with uh, longtime opposition leader Anwar, who also used to be uh, Mahathir's deputy before a dramatic falling out uh, in the late 90s. Uh, and also in coalition with uh, uh, some other strange uh, bedfellows, all looking really to depose the prime minister. Now, if they somehow were to gain power, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about what they would actually do other than uh, declare victory having uh, overturned Najib. Uh, but in terms of this election, uh, it's clear that Umno and Najib are, are figuring out some very, uh, through tactical means, how to, how to win re-election. Uh, and by win, it doesn't mean uh, uh, get the most votes. It means uh, win the most seats. Uh, and so one issue has been uh, some redistricting. So with the United States, we think we can do gerrymandering well. Like Malaysia's really got this figured out. Uh, there's also been a new, very controversial fake news uh, law, which I think uh, we wouldn't see. And maybe we'll circle back to this later. I don't think Malaysia would have a fake news law if it weren't for uh, the United States, uh, some uh, president of the United States, uh, um, fanning the flames uh, around the world on this particular issue. So some may call these dirty tricks. Others might call them pragmatic. But Umno and Najib are certainly uh, figuring out how they can win the most seats so they can retain power. Great, thank you. I want to pivot to Thailand. It's been almost it'll be four years in May since the generals rolled the dice and uh, conducted a military coup against a democratically elected leadership uh, in Bangkok. On the one hand, you have an interesting story recently. Uh, Prime Minister Prayut uh, wrote a pop song that was performed by a ardent and devote, uh, devoted supporter of the military regime. Uh, and this video uh, of the song was actually posted on YouTube, where it got a couple hundred likes and approximately 49,000 to 50,000 dislikes uh, on YouTube. We'll post the, uh, the, the video link in the show notes. But I, I want to ask, the regime has promised elections or a return to a path toward elections for the last couple of years. Are we seeing any cracks in the facade that make this more likely? Is there any sense of optimism on this issue? So I think Thai politics are as divisive as ever. Uh, But across the board, there is uh, a pent-up interest for more political space uh, and an election. And that election, I think, will come uh, probably in early 2019, potentially slightly later. Um, But the question is, uh, uh, what kind of election under what system? The system that's been devised uh, um, uh, ensures that there's an awful lot of uh, ripcords for uh, uh, um, should there be paralysis uh, um, in the future, Um, all that, of course, benefiting uh, the establishment forces. Uh, um, 
it's unclear how, how the elections are going to go. Um, the, the, the way it's been set up is that you're going to have a number of small parties uh, that are going to have to be, um, uh, form coalitions. There's a possibility that Prayut may end up uh, at the head of some coalition government, and without a doubt, he's not leaving the scene anytime soon. But we will see an election. Uh, we still will still see fractured politics, and we st- will still see uh, establishment forces in Bangkok uh, holding on to power uh, in a pretty significant way. I want to talk a bit about the rest of mainland Southeast Asia, uh, but if folks are interested in, for example, the politics of Laos, we're not going to cover that today, but we did talk to Josh Karlancic of CFR last January uh, about both the history of U.S.-Lao relations and domestic politics in, in Laos. So feel free to check that out. In addition, uh, while we may reference it in the course of our discussion today, we're not going to speak at length about Myanmar. Uh, We talked to former U.S. Ambassador to Myanmar, Derek Mitchell, back in November. Obviously, uh, a nascent democracy with an extremely uh, discouraging situation uh, developing in Rakhine State with the ethnic cleansing of Rohingya fleeing to, to Bangladesh. So to areas in mainland Southeast Asia we won't cover, but that we have uh, in the past. Brian, I want to turn to uh, Cambodia and Vietnam. First off, in Cambodia, you mentioned leaving the scene. Are we in a situation still where Hun Sen has to leave the scene before we see any progress forward in terms of governance there? And in terms of leaving the scene, it doesn't seem like he's uh, likely to do that willingly. Um, To answer your question, I think um, for things to change in a major way, um, over the long term, absolutely. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the international community as a whole, uh, um, uh, there's a lot of blame to go around, but there are certainly uh, uh, unrealistic expectations, uh, especially during the 1990s, of where Cambodia might be heading. Um, this is another case, I mean, it's somewhat akin to Malaysia, where there will be an election. Uh, this one, uh, 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 but in this case, where the Hun Sen party, uh, Hun Sen personally, uh, really using their tools to uh, uh, figure out how to uh, win this election on on their own terms. Um, Outright uh, dissolving the opposition party, shutting down civil society organizations, uh, accusing the United States of somehow looking to overthrow the government. These were all incredibly dramatic moves. I think it's an open question uh, about what happens after the election. I think you could see uh, a return of more space in civil society. Uh, But in terms of uh, truly free and fair elections while Hun Sen is around, that seems pretty unlikely to me. Um, Hun Sen uh, models himself after the Khmer kings of of, of old uh, and uh, uh, sees himself as this paramount unifying force in the country, and he has no qualms about that. So no hope for the CNRP, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, and Kim Soko? Or... Uh, not not in sitting on top of a government in Cambodia. I want to turn now also to, to Vietnam. Um, does, in your view, Vietnam have a it's, not a, it's a recurring human rights problem that could start to overshadow its, its status as a geopolitical darling because it has been willing to stand up to China in the South China Sea? Um, so with Vietnam, I think you need to take, uh, you know, you need to look at the short term and the long term trends. I mean, long term, it's becoming a more free, open society. There's, uh, there, there is a civil society. People have more rights. They're making reforms on labor and these sorts of things. Um, there's some very negative uh, recent trends, though, particularly on political prisoners. 
so you know, there's you know, if you if you zoom out and say where is Vietnam going, it's going into generally in a good way. But I think we need to make sure that uh, as we can uh, from the international community, make sure that we're showing that we're still watching the problems uh, that they have. Uh, but Vietnam is a country of almost 100 million people with a fast-growing economy. Uh, it's strategically important. Um, it's the the relationship with the United States is very much on on the upswing, as with uh, Japan uh, and others. And it's uh, it, it's not just uh, uh, you know uh, uh, you know a small player. It's a, it's becoming a major middle power in in Asia. I want to turn to a democratically elected regime, uh, that of uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines continues to throw sparks. Uh, of course, his regime's controversial war on drugs and extrajudicial killings are uh, persisting, and he continues to make uh, off-color comments. Uh, however, some of these policies may have started to trigger a negative backlash with actual consequence, uh, particularly in the Philippines' relationship with the European Union, who have threatened to withdraw uh, preferential tariffs which would be a significant move over uh, continued rice abuses. So we have that issue, and I want to dig a little deeper and ask, in addition to sort of the the stuff that we see on top, how have different Philippine institutions constrained uh, Duterte's uh, more aggressive tendencies and rhetoric? First of all, your point is right that he was a democratically elected leader. He also still, President Duterte, uh, still gets uh, quite high approval ratings. Um, in the Philippines, although it's important to note that uh, every Filipino president uh, typically goes through a significant lengthy honeymoon period. But I think uh, on any measure, though, it's, it's important to note that that he is uh, uh, largely popular. He seemed to be somebody who gets things done. He also inherited a good, uh, good a growing economy and has brought in a serious economic team uh, um, that is, is um uh, creating a favorable, more favorable investment climate. Uh, um, he has made this dramatic opening towards China uh, the, and really put a bet on the, the idea of China becoming a more important economic partner uh, um, for the Philippines. And of course, that puts pressure on J- Japan. Uh, and But you know, if you look at the data of the United States, uh, Singapore, some of the uh, the major investors who are, who are who are going into the Philippines right now. So there, so there's good dynamics there, um, but I wouldn't you know on the specific issue with the with Europe. I think it's important to to note that uh, the Philippines has a lot of partners, and President Duterte is not uh, not going to be uh, um, so willing to make concessions uh, just because uh, Brussels might be uh, saying things that 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 he doesn't uh, like. Um, uh, but I think if you look at various indicators from Freedom House, Transparency International, and others, uh, uh, rule of law, political uh, space is declining in the Philippines. So uh, Philippines has six-year presidential terms. We've got a long ways to go. Uh, the honeymoon might end. We'll see whether the Chinese investment uh, arrives as promised. Uh, we'll see where inequality goes uh, um, and, and how this all develops in the next few years. Interestingly enough, island nations in Southeast Asia are a source of relative strength for democracy in the region right now. We're not going to cover Brunei here, so shout out to the uh, the podcasters covering politics in the in the kingdom. But I do want to ask about Indonesia and Singapore specifically, uh, two countries with very different uh, political situations and fairly different economic status as well. How are they 
continuing to, to progress in the right direction? What are they doing right? And is there anything to be concerned about on the horizon? Um, I, I think Singapore is always a unique case uh, when talking about uh, democracy, rule of law, et cetera. Um, but the bottom line there is that the the uh, while fraying a bit, the social contract is still still in place. The the government's delivering goods for its people, uh, and the people are largely bought in. Although the government realizes that it needs to be more responsive. Uh, to all of its citizens and their debates over the welfare state uh, and what have you. But things are certainly very, very much stable there. Um, with Indonesia, um, probably the uh, uh, the freest, uh, most vibrant democracy um, in the region. We're um, already in election season. Uh, uh, April 2019, President Jokowi will be up for uh, for re-election. Um, he will... that. Election by uh, any uh, all uh, observers would say is going to be free and fair, and the and the candidate who gets the most votes is going to become president. Of course, there are problems in Indonesia's Indonesia's democracy. That's that itself is only twenty years old. Um, uh, there's uh, certainly concern in the civil society community about. Uh, uh, um, some uh, uh, restrictions on them now that that wouldn't uh, that would that, that really weren't the direction we were expecting things to go. There's a lot of concern uh, about um, uh, divisive uh, politics based on uh, on, on religion um, and race. There's there's remains to be uh, remains too much influence for uh, entrenched. Uh, uh, business interests um, in Jakarta. Same time, though, the the Corruption Eradication Commission uh, is doing bold, uh, important work, and uh, President Jokowi has managed to keep himself uh, his clean reputation uh, intact over these last four years. Uh, and Indonesians believe that 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 he understands their concerns. He's very focused on inequality. Uh, he's focused on basic services uh, and costs of, of living, and he's seen to be personally uh, uh, clean, and that's uh, still supported in Indonesia. I mean, Indonesians uh, don't necessarily like their politicians, but in general, they like their system of government. And uh, uh, it seems like every five years we say this is the time when Indonesian democracy will truly be entrenched. Uh, so we'll say it again next year. Uh, but it's been successful for the last several rounds. So um, I, I think it's a generally positive story, although you can, you can find reasons for concern, just as you can everywhere, including here at home. Thanks, Brian. That was excellent. Uh, last summer, uh, Michael Vitidiotis made the point uh, on this podcast that over the last generation, no one in Southeast Asia had high expectations for liberal democracy, but there were expectations for the way in which uh, services, goods, and rule of law uh, might progress in the region. Well, I, I suppose one should begin by saying that no one in Southeast Asia um, had high expectations for liberal democracy. But I think there were expectations for the progressive development of popular sovereignty, delivering governments, delivering goods to people, uh, making sure that their welfare is looked after, you know, taking care of justice and equality. And this is, this is what has lagged behind in, in a general sense. If this trend that you've discussed today and that Michael uh, uh, highlighted uh, last year continues and persists, what role does the United States have to play in assisting the people and the governments of the region in continuing to develop good governance practices and uh, rule of law and democracy? Yeah, I mean, there's what you say and, and what you do. Um, and I think we need to be doing both. 
Uh, it's unclear whether we'll do either. Um, uh, it's important, I think, that the United States uh, make clear at the very senior levels that uh, not only do we do care about democracy, rule of law, human rights, but we think that uh, there's a track record of countries that support uh, the rights of their citizens, uh, have the strongest, most just societies uh, in, in the long run. Uh, we need to explain the theory of the case. And that starts from the president and the secretary of states. My hope that Secretary Pompeo, when he comes in, will uh, reclaim this space uh, that was pretty deliberately um, put aside. Um, now, because saying that you care about democracy, uh, rule of law, human rights does not mean you don't engage with these countries. You need to be able to do both at the same time. I mean, for instance, when uh, there was plenty of criticism uh, in certain circles when uh, President Trump welcomed uh, Prime Minister Najib and Prime Minister uh, Prayut uh, to Washington. Um, uh, and you can make that case, but you need to engage, right? So the point is you don't not invite them. You invite them and you say we have this important relationship, but, you know, but we also care about these other issues. And we think in the long term, uh, um, rule of law, democracy, human rights uh, makes your country stronger, makes you a better partner for the United States. We need to message at the top level. Um, in terms of the doing what you do, uh, we need to not uh, slash the budget of the State Department, the USAID. We need a we need a diplomatic surge here. <laughs> uh, we need to uh, not stop funding democracy and civil society uh, programs in Southeast Asia and around the world. We need to do more of it, uh, or else uh, the region suffers, U.S. Uh, uh, interests suffer. And at the end of the day, I think that the beleaguered small-D Democrats across Southeast Asia um, uh, want the United States uh, – uh, to be present on these issues. It's part of what distinguishes us uh, from others, including China. Um, it's certainly ultimately in the strategic interest of the United States in terms of uh, 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 developing attractive power towards these people in these countries to uh, stand up for democracy, rule of law, civil society, and human rights in these countries. That doesn't mean we don't engage, but you need to be able to do both. Brian Harding, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. That's our show. Special thanks to Brian Harding for his insights. And on Kajit Asia, you can read fresh written analysis. First, on Japan's challenge with North Korea's illegal fishing in the Sea of Japan, and a second post on the state of progress in South Asia's efforts to achieve regional energy integration. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemulangsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Reconnecting Asia site to check out our latest feature on South Korea's infrastructure vision. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast with Bonnie Glazer and Carl Minzner on how China's return to authoritarianism is undermining its rise. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.